Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. Jesus said, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also trust in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's house. If this was not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Have you heard this scripture before? A lot of us, it's kind of familiar. Oftentimes, I've heard this read at a funeral, right? It is comforting to think that our departed loved one who followed Jesus in this life gets to be with Jesus and now is residing in heaven. Um, it's comforting to know that they have left this life and this world and are in a better place. So these words are reassuring. But I think there's more to the story here. And we're going to spend some time walking through this this morning. This morning is our fifth Sunday in something we're calling the I Am series. In this series, we're looking at the eight I Am statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John. Today's statement is actually three separate statements, right? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, the reason we're focusing on these statements, these I am's, is they show Jesus' self-identity, who he thought he was, and who he wanted us to know he is. Identity is one of those common things that gets talked about a lot these days. Who do you identify to be? The last couple of months, I've come to realize that in our faith family here at MBF, there's a lot of confusion about our identity. The question is, should our identity be wrapped up in the things of this world, or should it be fully in Jesus? However, Jesus was not confused about his identity at all, and he didn't want us to be confused about who he is. Now, I can say I am and follow it up with an adjective or an adverb, and you get to know maybe a little bit about me or at least my current emotional state, right? Um, I can say I am thankful, I am hungry, I am tired, I am six foot four. Then if you say I am with a noun after it, now it becomes an identity statement. I am a Broncos fan, I'm a father, I'm a child of God. But then if you take I am and you put the word the in front of the noun, now you have an exclusive claim to an identity. I am the greatest of all time. I am the president. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now these exclusive claims to identity, they invite us to make a judgment 
of whether that identity is true or false. In my opinion, verse 6 in the 14th chapter of John is the theological high point of the book of John. In this short statement, Jesus proclaims his identity, his purpose, his role in eternity. And he makes an exclusive statement and claim that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord for eternity, and also for our lives here and now. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, before we dive into this passage, there's a few things I want to do. One is you notice at the bottom of the screen, there's something that says, ask anything with a phone number. If you text a question, let's say during the sermon, a question comes up or during the week, you have a spiritual question, text that number and one of the pastors will get back to you pretty quickly. The second thing I want to do is spend a few moments on what this passage is not. Some of the misunderstandings about this pastor or this passage. Now, we're not at a funeral this morning, so I can be pretty direct and frank with you. One of the hardest things for a pastor to do is to officiate a funeral where the family says the person was a follower of Christ, but there just doesn't seem to be any evidence that they actually knew anything about Jesus. I mean, I'll meet with a family, and sometimes they'll say things like, well, they were a good person. They used to go to church sometimes. Um, They said grace at meals. They felt that faith was kind of a private thing, and that's why they just did it on their own. They partied heavily, but it was all good fun. You either loved them or you hated them. They did life their own way, or they had no problem telling you what they thought of you. These statements don't actually give any evidence that they followed Christ. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Mike, you're being pretty judgy this morning, right? How can you judge whether somebody is a Christian or not? It is true, I cannot look at the condition of somebody's heart. That's God's job. But Scripture does tell us that we can judge somebody's actions to determine what path they are on. So 1 John chapter 2 says this, If someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Sometimes at church we use this phrase, showing fruit. And the thought is, is your faith showing fruit? Is it producing good things? Another way to think about it is, can we see Jesus in you? Do you love others? Are you compassionate? Are you seeking God? Are you being guided by the Holy Spirit? Are you rejecting the selfish spirit of our culture? I usually avoid using John 14 at a funeral just because I want to be careful not to give anybody any false assurances if I'm not sure if they're actually going to heaven or not, if they knew Jesus. For non-believers, this passage tends to bring up two reactions. The first reaction is they think it applies to everyone. Our culture desperately wants to believe that everybody gets to go to heaven. A few years back, there was a, uh, a, at that time, he was an evangelical pastor. He had a big church. His name was Ron, uh, Rob Bell. And Rob uh, wrote this book called Love Wins. It went viral. It was on the New, Year's, New York bestselling list. But he 
got a number of things really wrong in that book. I'll be honest. One of the things he said is that if you're in a burning building, Jesus may be the exit sign, but there may be other ways to get out of the building. The thought that all paths lead to heaven is false. It is a complete lie. When Jesus said, I am the way to the Father, he's not talking about him being one of the options. He is the only option. Which leads to the second reaction people have, which is this passage is intolerant. There's a bumper sticker you may see around every once in a while. It's purple. It says coexist on it. All the letters are made up of different symbols from various faiths. So the the letter T on coexist is the cross. The whole point behind it is the thought that all religions are basically the same, so they should be able to get along, right? Every major religion, in fact, every major philosophy of life makes exclusivity statements. None are accepting of everyone. Ask somebody the question, how do you get to to heaven or paradise or nirvana or enlightenment, whatever that faith goes towards? And you'll find out that Islam, Catholicism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Mormonism, evangelical biblical Christianity all make exclusive statements. You have to follow their way or it doesn't work. About a year ago, I was counseling somebody, and she self-identified as a Buddhist agnostic Catholic, and she wanted to know what the Bible said. I spent a lot of time talking through her, saying, you have to pick one. You can't be all of those things, or else you're none of them. Our world wants to water down the truth, to allow everything to be true at once. It's what they call being tolerant. But keep in mind, the definition of tolerance is not agreeing with somebody. The definition is the willingness to respect someone else's opinion or beliefs, even when their beliefs conflict with your own. Scripture tells us that we are to be tolerant. We need to respect others, but we don't have to agree with them. Okay? So I apologize this morning if I offend you or I seem intolerant. That's not where my heart is. I want to go through this passage and just say, what does the Bible actually tell us that this means? One of the key components of understanding Scripture is a concept we call context. And context in particular, the best way to do it is you don't just read a sentence or a paragraph. You need to read more around it. You need to read the whole chapter or maybe a couple chapters leading up to it. So you take it in context. You know the direction that things are going, and you just don't read a verse and think it means something that it never intended to actually mean. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at chapter 14, but I want you to, right now, take out your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12. We're going to start in 12, and we're going to really quick kind of skim through 12 and 13, so we set up 14, okay? Chapter 12 starts this way. It says, it was six days before Passover. So the uh, chapter 14 is about Passover. So we got six days here that we're going to go through really quick. Jesus and his disciples for some time have been heading towards Jerusalem. And along the way, he's been telling them, we're going to Jerusalem and I am going to die there. Okay? He's done that several times. So the beginning of chapter 12, they are in Bethany. They visit a friend's house. 
And during while they're eating, a lady named Mary comes and she anoints Jesus with oil and with perfume. And Jesus said, she is anointing me for my burial, for my death. That had to be a little perplexing to the disciples. That he is getting ready for his burial. Chapter 12 then goes to the Palm Sunday, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But Palm Sunday, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. All of these different pilgrims and different people come out, and they're praising him and they're cheering because they're thinking he is the warrior King David kind of reincarnated, if you will, coming back. Okay? They're excited. And you know that the disciples had to be elated as well, right? That's what they were feeling. They're like, hey, we're with the rock star from Galilee. We're part of this. And then immediately in chapter 12, Jesus then starts teaching again. He says, like a seed, I have to die so that others may live. And that had to be depressing to think that he was going to die. Well, chapter 12 ends in the Gospel of John, but if you read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find out there's a lot about the, what we call Holy Week, the next several days. Jesus spent his time teaching. And during that, there had to be a bunch of different emotions that came up in the disciples, like surprise, for instance, when Jesus shows up to the temple and he overturns all the tables, right? A certain amount of pride as Jesus verbally spanks all the religious leaders, right? And then confusion a little bit, Jesus teaching on the first will be last, and this, this widow that gives two small coins, her gift is more valuable than a rich man's gift, as well as, again, talking about his coming death. So they had this mix of surprise and pride and confusion. Brings us to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the beginning of what we call the Last Supper. And so the disciples are all gathering. They had to be pretty excited. They're going to be doing the Passover meal. They've been looking forward to it. Jesus always brings some different teaching about God, so they're probably kind of looking forward to that. Well, they show up, but something was missed. In that culture, when people came to a room like that, whoever came first, or if there was a servant in that room, they were supposed to wash people's feet as they came in. And none of the disciples did that. So at the beginning of the meal, Jesus gets up and he starts going around and washing their feet. The disciples had to feel shame. <laughs> our teacher, our Messiah, our rabbi, is washing our feet. And then Jesus says, you know, the 12 of you, one of you is not like the other. One of you is going to betray me tonight. There had to be anger. <laughs> what? One of us is going to do this to you, Jesus? No way. And then Jesus says, by the way, you need to love each other. The way the world is going to know that you're my disciples is how you love each other. So they probably felt a little challenged after feeling anger. And then Jesus says, by the way, tonight, Peter, the leader of the disciples, tonight, you are going to de deny me three times. They had to feel a little bit of fear. You know, what the heck is going to happen tonight that Peter is going to deny you? That's not what he normally would do. So they had to feel fear, maybe a little shattered. So the disciples had this jumble of emotions, right? 
They were perplexed, they were elated, they were depressed, confused, surprised, shamed, angry, betrayed, fearful, shattered. Sounds a little like us, doesn't it? You ever feel that way? Maybe you're ashamed at things you've done in the past. Maybe you're sad and depressed about what's confronting you right now. Or you're perplexed and fearful of the future. Uh, John Piper calls it um, the unholy turmoil of the soul. Is God going to step up as he really in control of your life? When you're in this kind of jumble, this unholy turmoil, do you ever cry out to God? You ever sit there and wonder, I wonder what Jesus would say to me if he was right here? Which brings us to chapter 14. And Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. The disciples were being forced to deal with the fact that Jesus was going to die. And Jesus is giving them an action to take. It's not the first time that he's talked about his death. It's not the first time he's talked to them about trusting him. Here he is saying, you're in this turmoil right now. But keep on the path that I've taught you. Keep doing these things of faith that you have been doing. Stay on the path. Trust in me. Let me ask you a question, a choice between two things. Do we allow the troubles, the problems of our heart to overturn our faith? Or do we allow our faith to overturn the troubles of our heart? Which one of those shows trust? And what is Jesus calling them to trust in? Some translations here use the word believe. Believe in God and believe also in me. The world thinks that believing in Jesus is having faith that is blind, a blind faith. People will say, well, the Bible just wants you to believe without any evidence, just to take a leap of faith, no facts, no assurance. That is not what the Jesus, what the Bible, it's not what Jesus asks of us. You see, the Bible is full of times where God reminds us of what he's done in the past so that we can trust him. There's times where he goes, you know, do you guys remember that? Remember that time that you trusted me and we walked together? Do you remember that time that I stepped in and did a miracle and I provided for you? Do you remember that? The Bible asks us to continue to believe based on what God has already done. What we can see he has done in history, what we can see he's done in others' lives and what he's done on our own lives. These intersection videos that we show on Sunday right now, they are evidence that Jesus is active and alive in people's lives. And he's active and alive in your life too. Jesus continued and said, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now, just from an Old Testament perspective, um, the Father's house is clearly kind of a reference to heaven. And Psalm 33 talks about that. And we'll talk about Psalm 33 a little bit later. But in this day and age, culturally, 
A room in the father's house meant that you were part of the family. You weren't an outsider. You weren't a guest. You weren't a hired servant. You were part of the family. The start of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who believe and have accepted him, Jesus gave the right for them to be the children of God. That's quite an identity statement. The children of God. It is found in the Psalms, in Proverbs, Isaiah, Hosea, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Hebrews, and 1 John. It is not a minor theme. It is not a minor identity. It's something that we should cling to, to be a child of God. Now, when people hear these verses, this part of it, particularly the part that says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I think sometimes we think of Jesus slipping on his carpenter apron again, grabbing hammer and nail and getting started, right? Or maybe even he starts that construction, that remodel just before you die. This misses the point, and it's actually out of context. That's not the correct way to think about this. Think about the moment that he's saying these words. He's in the upper room. It's Passover. He is still alive. He's teaching his disciples for the last time. He's about to be arrested, beaten, and crucified. The preparation that he is talking about here is what he's about to do on the cross. That's the preparation to get ready, to prepare a way for you to be able to get to heaven through his death, his sacrifice, his atonement, his resurrection. The biggest feature of heaven is not a beautiful subdivision of houses. The biggest feature is Jesus himself. That's why we long to get to go there, because we will be with him. Then he said, when everything is ready, I will come and get you. When everything is ready, when the fulfillment of time has happened, when everybody who's ever going to live has been born, when the last person chooses to follow Jesus, that's when he's going to come back. And we will enter heaven forever with him. And then Jesus said, and you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? There are times when I read scripture that sometimes I maybe inappropriately add a soundtrack to it. Can't you just hear a, Thomas, <laughs> what? Out of frustration, I probably would have replied and just said, weren't you listening? Uh, weren't you paying attention the last three years and hundreds of miles that we have walked together? I have been showing you the path. I have been telling you where we're going and how to stay on it. I'm going to die on the cross. And then I'm going to come back to life. And when I do, I'm then going to go to heaven. And because I'm going ahead of you, you get to come along with me. But I'm not Jesus. I think Jesus knew through compassion the jumble of emotions that they were in. Instead, he tells them the path again in a nice, concise manner. Jesus told him, I, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. 
in the time we have remaining here, I want to walk through these, two, these three exclusive statements of identity that Jesus says. We're going to start with the way. Jesus is the way to the Father. It's pretty clear. The way to eternity, the way to be with God forever. We embrace this way when we become a disciple of Christ, when we accept him as our Lord and our Savior. And we show that we're on this way by being on the path of faith, by living like Jesus, loving God, loving others, making disciples. To get to follow this way, we don't have to earn it. We don't have to purchase it. Jesus purchased it for us on the cross. It's his gift of grace and love to us. There is no other way. Jesus is not one of many. He is the only way. Think for a moment about the most known Bible verse, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not die but have eternal life, everlasting life. That's it. It's pretty clear. Believe in him, that's the way. I love how Romans 10.9 says it. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not a 17-point program. It's not leveling up. You believe, you will be saved. It does require faith to be on this path, not blind faith, but the faith that Jesus has done what he said he would do and that he'll continue to be trustworthy in the future. I think that's why he said he's the truth. Truth is a loaded term today in our pluralistic postmodern society. Truth today is often treated more like opinion, right? And it's because so many people have, have just rejected the thought that there is objective truth or absolute truth. But this isn't new. The same thing was happening in Jesus' day in the Greek and Roman culture. Um, we can read about it just a few chapters later, about maybe 14 hours or less after this event. Uh, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. In, in John chapter 18, and he says, I came to the world to testify the tr about the truth, and all who love the truth will recognize what I say is true. And Pilate says, what's truth? That's kind of a response for today, right? That's how people might respond today. What's, what's truth? I think we miss something when we read the Bible in English a little bit. There's a, a concept that comes from the Old Testament. It's in Hebrew. Uh, the original language that that was written in. And it's the word for truth. And the word is emet. Emet. And the thing about emet is it's a nuanced word. It has multiple meanings. It means truth, but it also means trust and faith and steady and reliable and unchanging. It's kind of the concept of bedrock, right? And in English translations of the Old Testament, they will use those different words whenever they come across emmet based on kind of the, the context of that moment. But the word emmet can also be translated into what's called a transliterated word called amen. Anybody ever heard of amen before? It's actually based on the concept of emmet. And the meaning of amen is actually true. That is true. 
long time ago, I, I learned forever ago that maybe the way to think about amen is when you say it, it means let it be so. I think that misses something, though. It sounds like maybe a Star Trek captain or I just am wishing that what I just prayed is going to happen. Maybe it'll happen, right? Maybe it'll be so. Think about the punch that your prayer has when you think about the end, when you say amen is actually saying this is true. So, for instance, uh, the, the Apostle Paul, end of a lot of his letters, he's got a prayer. End of Philippians, he says, Now all glory to God, our Father forever and ever, amen. He met. This is true. All glory belongs to God. This is true. It has a different feel about our prayers, doesn't it? So who and what are you trusting? What do you think is true? You cannot logically trust something that is shifting, that's unstable, that's questionable. We should not fully put our trust in our government, our jobs, our banks, especially this week, our family, our education. It's like trying to cross a deep valley on a rope ladder or a monkey ladder, right? I'd much rather cross on a steady, unshifting bridge that is anchored in bedrock. Assurance comes from solid ground, which is why the Psalms, for instance, over and over keep saying that God is our rock. And while Jesus taught in Matthew that we need to build our life upon the rock, our life upon him, which is why he said, I am the life. Now, given the context of the, uh, the, the Last Supper so far, um, when he says, I am the life, he is clearly talking about the eternal life, right? The afterlife. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17 says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and by dying he could break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We probably could say this again and say he set free all who lived their lives as slaves to the unholy turmoil of life. I often talk about the gospel. And the gospel is just simply the good news that we can have a relationship with Jesus now and forever as he heals and he forgives and he transforms us. The gospel is about heaven, but that's not all it's about. Jesus' statement that he is the life is also about right now. The unholy turmoil that you're going through, the struggles, the pain, the sacrifice, the trauma of this life. Do you remember verse 1 where Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also trust in me. There are many times when we're in turmoil that just knowing that Jesus is present, that he loves us, and that he is the life, that you can find joy and hope in him even in the darkness. Now there's one more big claim here at the end of verse 6 that we need to talk about. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying that you can't know God unless you know him, right? You cannot hope to go to heaven by saying, I believe in God, but you reject Jesus. Let me say it 
differently just a little bit. You cannot hope to go to heaven by saying, I believe in there is some God, but you don't know anything about Christ. The path of faith, the road to heaven is discovered when we are actually on the road to hell. And that road is mapped out with all sorts of half-truths, right? Things like, hey, if you're passionate about something, it's all going to work out. Um, doesn't matter what you're passionate about. Being aware of God but not actually connected to him, that's not a problem. Good intentions are just as good as actually doing something, right? That things will just take care of themselves tomorrow. But we can't wait for tomorrow because we don't know what tomorrow brings. We have to know Jesus now. We have to know the Father now. We have to be assured about our home now and tomorrow and for eternity. So do you know the way? Do you know the truth? Do you know the life? Do you know Jesus? I'd like to invite my wife Stephanie up. She's going to lead us in directed prayer. And as she starts to make her way up, can I ask a favor of you? Help me out. Don't make your funeral a question mark. Don't make any of us have to wonder, were they really a Christian? Or was their faith just lip service in a box they checked on Sunday? Or did you actually walk the path of faith, following Jesus and living more and more like him every day? You see, death is not the end. For the disciple of Christ, we can have peace because we know the way. We can have assurance because we trust the truth. We can have hope as we travel from this life here and now to life ever after with Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life.